Oh, I hope you know the Bible's not just about what happens after you die. There's tons of great stuff on that, no doubt. But it's also about how to live right now in a fallen, broken world. And that's what the Old Testament wisdom books are all about. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes give us insights on how to live now. Because if you don't know what God has to say about now, you might end up wishing you had lived very, very differently. And Solomon is going to put his finger right on. So there's insights the Bible gives us that, believe it or not, we're not grateful. We're not like, oh, glad you told me that. We resist. He's going to put his finger right on one of the biggest insights and most life-changing insights that we struggle to accept. You ready? The reality of our frailty. That'll change how you live. Recognizing we're frail. We're frail. The reality of our frailty is what he's going to put his finger on today. Because if you don't know what you cannot do. You know, we keep trying to do things we can't do that we weren't called to do. And then we don't do what he says, do this. If you don't know what you cannot do, you can't start focusing on what you should be doing. And so Solomon actually, I don't know if you picked up on it, Solomon actually uses the word better 23 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because, oh, he wants us to get a hold of something better. There's a better way to live. There's a better focus you should have. There are some better priorities. In fact, in our passage today, he's going to use the word better seven times. But it might surprise you what he says is better. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely, Oppression drives the wise man into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, Consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What does Solomon say is a better way to live than what we would choose for ourselves? Here's the first, number one. Number one, he says, stop trying to ignore death. And start learning from it. Start learning from it. Uh, Verses 1 to 6 are all about what you can learn from death. Because I hope you recognize we have a culture. We have a culture of avoidance and denial. And here's what's so weird. We have a culture of avoidance and denial when it comes to real death, my own and those I love. And yet, it's weird, we've got... We've got all these violent video games filled with death, and we're obsessed over serial killer documentaries. 
We're, we engage it constantly when it's anonymous. But when it gets close to us, our culture works hard to not think or talk about it. Even to the point of, I hope I don't create an awkward moment, you're like, yeah, I, I say that all the time. We won't say the word death. She passed. My grandmother passed. Like, what are you talking about? She's dead. My grandmother died. We don't want to say that. Just this weekend, I already had this in my notes, and I'm sitting reading one of my news blogs, and it's like, this, this weekend we're celebrating the passing of an American musical icon, Tony Bennett. Passing. What, he's passing through Cincinnati? He's been, no, he died. But the article didn't say, we're celebrating the death of Tony Bennett at 96. Why? We don't like saying the word, hearing the word, grappling with the word. Mm. The American novelist and activist Susan Sontag said this, quote, For those who live neither with religious consolations about death, nor with a sense of death or anything else as natural, death is the obscene mystery, the ultimate affront, the thing that cannot be controlled. It can only be denied. You realize what's going on? We've always struggled with this as long as people have been alive, but it's worse today. When people don't believe in God, and more and more, that's the deal. When you don't believe in God, my friend, you don't know what to do with death. You don't. These two things go together, God and death, God and death, God. When you don't believe in God, you don't know what to do with death. 68, and I'm probably going to step on some toes here, 68% of Americans do not have a will. If that's you, like, repent like now. Get up, leave, make a phone call. That's not a good way to live. And you say, but I'm young. Do young people die? Well, they die poor usually, so there's nothing to pass on, no big deal. But, I mean, people, I just watch it continually as a pastor. Somebody dies, no will. Guess what? Nightmare for the family. Hope you realize that's not a great way to go. It's awful for those you left behind. They don't get your stuff. Uncle Sam sticks his big hand in there and takes a ginormous chunk of it because you didn't make plans. But people don't want to sit down and acknowledge that it's coming, that it's going to happen. Avoidance and denial. But here's the deal. When you try to ignore death, you don't know everything you need to know about how to live. It affects how you live. It affects how you live. It affects how you live. You don't know what you need for life. In other words, coming to grips, here's how I would say it to you, coming to grips with death, grappling with it, looking it in the face, acknowledging it, actually can wake us and shake us to what matters most. In other words, thinking about death can serve as like a detox clinic that sobers you up and sends you back out to live for what matters most. Do you understand what I'm talking about? People who go to rehab, why? They're zoned out, they're on a drug so that they don't have to think about what's most important. As you come off that and you sober up, sometimes it's very painful because you're aware of all you've crushed, all you've broken, all the bad decisions, but it's a better way to live. Sober, fully awake, and you can focus on what matters most now. Thinking about death can serve us like a detox clinic that sobers us and sends us back out for what matters most. Look at what he says in verse 2. That's why Solomon says what he does in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than than to go to the house of feasting. You realize what he's saying? He's basically saying you can learn more from a funeral than a party. Could we all agree? Think about the last funeral that you sat through. Was it not sobering? Did it not cause you to think and reflect? What if that was me? What, I hope you weren't just scrolling on your phone and looking at TikTok videos. I hope you looked at that loved one in the casket and thought, what if that was me? What will I wish that I'd done? How will I wish I'd treated my loved ones? Change now. Move in a new direction now. Make some better choices now. Oh, you can learn more from a funeral than a party. And I don't hear what I'm not saying. I love parties. Oh, my goodness, I love music. I love dancing. I love food. I love people. But I've never left a party saying, what I learned tonight is going to change how I live tomorrow. I have left saying what I can do tomorrow is very different because my back hurts so bad. I dance so hard. 
All the 20-year-olds got in the middle of the floor, that's a thing they do now, and just hopped for five minutes with their hands up. Let me tell you, if you're over 50, try that. Oh, my word. It wrecked me, not the next day. I had to reach down and grab my leg and swing it towards the door of my car to get out. It couldn't do that by itself. Oh, oh, not just for a day. Three weeks, I was wrecked. Nothing that Advil and Aleve can't fix, and I would do it again. So much fun. To hop. Oh, and then to get down low and hop. Anyway. But... But that's why I only do this at wedding receptions. Praise God. It's like long recovery times. I mean, where's a pastor supposed to dance? You can't go to the clubs on Friday. It's just awkward. So I save it up. It all builds up inside of me for a wedding reception. I'm like, oh, I mean, that first song. I, now, I got to know it. I got to be honest. There's songs today. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. I can't dance to stuff I don't know. But if they start right off, do you remember the 21st night in September? Earth, wind, and fire. Oh, get out there. Or if they lead in with, play that funky music, white boy, I'm out there all by myself, white boys out there. I don't even need 20-year-olds. Got to be the right song. But man, how do you sit there? I just look at people like, what are you doing? How? Oh. But I don't leave saying, the things I learned tonight going to change how I live tomorrow. But I have left funerals. I've left funerals thinking, wow, wow. Listen to the people talk about them. Listen to the difference they made. I want to do more of that because I want my life to count. He's saying you can learn from a funeral. But don't make a mistake right here. Don't, don't think, oh, focusing on death would make me morbid, Brad. Uh-uh. Focusing on death makes you more alive makes you more alive. Oh, it makes you more alive. Here's how I'd say it to you. When you acknowledge and grapple with and are willing to think about death, you live with depth. Acknowledging death causes you to live with more depth. You don't live as superficial. You don't live as trivial. Oh, you're alive to God, people, creation, and the things that matter most. Because here's why. When you acknowledge death, you realize all this stuff, my friendships, my kids, these opportunities at work, these abilities, these, the beauty of creation, it's all on loan. It's all on loan. It's all on loan. It's a vapor. It's fragile. It's short. And so it causes you to carpe diem, seize the day, seize the day, seize the Acknowledging death doesn't make you morbid. It makes you more alive, alive to what matters most superficiality when you see a superficial person superficiality you guys is the mark of an escapist who lives in denial immersed in the trivial amusing themselves to death so that they don't have to think about life you realize the word amuse and i'm not against amusement surely you know me enough i'm pretty fun i'm not against amusement but the word amuse is made of two latin words ah not Muse, think, let's not think, not think. I'm at an amusement park so I don't have to think. I'm, binge, you know, I'm binging on Netflix so I don't have to think. I'm playing this computer game for untold hours so I don't have to think. I actually should balance the checkbook and bathe someone starting with me, but I'm playing this computer game so that I don't have to think about what I should be doing. I remember one time sitting with someone I was trying to counsel who was just missing it on all the most important things in life, and I would watch them play, 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 and they weren't nine. They were a young adult. I remember leaning in saying, how do you do that? How can you even enjoy those things with all that you should be doing? And I'll never forget, the person leaned in and said, you don't know how hard I have to work at not thinking about those things I should be doing. Oh, hello. Okay. Okay. And and it's not a sin. I hope you realize Amusement in itself is not a sin unless your goal is to never think. Then there's a problem. There's a problem. The person who knows how to live, you guys, is the person who's no longer scared of death but is prepared for death. Prepared. Prepared. 
prepared because it frees you up. You realize when you look death in the face and you know the answer through Jesus Christ and you've grappled with it and owned it and, and know your fragility, it frees you up to live wide open, take risks, love deeply, live courageously. That's what it'll do. When you look at death and you're able to say, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you no longer own me. He does. And so I live wide open for him and others, for him and others, for him and others. The person who's afraid of death and doesn't want to acknowledge it, they live guarded and careful and superficial. But let me show you something else he says is not what we would normally choose. Number two, he says, stop. Oh, please stop. Stop rejecting what's happening and start accepting where you are in life. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not wrong to make goals. It's not wrong to have some ambition. It's not wrong to move ahead. What I'm talking about is what we all face in the fallen, broken world. Where you have this awareness, oh, I am not. You ever had this thought? My life is not what I thought it would look like at all. I'm not where I thought I would be at this point in my life. If you just stay in a mode of fussing and refusing to acknowledge it and accept it and say, now where's God's grace now? What can I do now? This is not what I, I mean, how many people say, oh my goodness, my life is exactly what I thought when I was seven I wanted to be and do. It's what I dreamed about. It's everything I scripted, and here I am. I'm living the dream, said no one ever. Ever. Welcome to a fallen, broken world. My plan was to be a doctor, you guys, a medical physician. In a million years, I'd never thought, oh, let's be a pastor. No. No. And I would guess so many of you are the same. The trials that we have, the limitations we have, the weaknesses we have, the sorrows we have, the brokenness we have, I would never have chosen or scripted. But oh, when you say, God, you're in it with me. This is where we are. Now what? Big difference. Because he's going to point out, he ends up putting his finger on two of the pitfalls that we're tempted to step into when we don't like what's happening now. He points out two pitfalls. Here's the first, letter A. He says, raging against your circumstances will only destroy you and everyone around you. Raging against your circumstances will only destroy you and everyone around you. Look what I'm talking about in verse 8 and 9. Better is the end of things than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Now, here's what's interesting, and you see it a lot in the Bible, you guys. If you choose to read your Bible, you will regularly find, oh, what the Bible is saying is exactly opposite of what the culture is screaming at me now. And sometimes, sadly, Christians with their little fish logo are screaming the same thing. Do we not have right now in our culture, anger's a virtue now. It's a virtue. They've made it a virtue. Best thing you could do right now is be angry. Nothing's going to change unless you're angry. Let's get angry. In fact, if you're not angry, you're part of the problem. We need everybody mad, Brad. Everybody mad, Brad, at the same time. And because you're resting and trusting in God, you're ticking me off. We can't get, that's what I'm hearing. I'm getting pushback as I bring rest, trust, peace, joy, Holy Spirit. I'm being told by Christians now, you don't understand now because of them, because of that group, because of what's going on. And so we've got the culture making anger a a virtue, and we've got Christians pushing it onto their acceptable, respectable sin list. You realize we often have that, even if you don't say it out loud. I know it's a sin, but it's a respectable, acceptable sin now because it gets stuff done. News alert. Whatever you get done, if it's not done God's way, it doesn't produce good. That's why there's a verse that says, the anger of man will not produce the righteousness of God. You will not use ungodly, fleshly, worldly means to accomplish godly, wonderful Life-changing, world-changing things. Don't, don't let anger lodge in your bosom. 
even though everyone around you might be going there. And here's what I think is funny. You can learn so much from Scripture. I know you might feel like Ecclesiastes is just a collection of random thoughts. And I have had to study a little longer and a little harder for this summer series, I'll be honest. But when you dig in, it's not as random as you think. Verses 8 and 9 are bumped up together for a reason. You realize verse 8 is talking about better to have a patient spirit than proud. And then verse 9 is talking about anger. Why? Pride and anger are companion sins that often run together. You know that? There's certain sins that run together. These are companion sins, pride and anger, because they feed off of each other. Anger, I mean pride, fuels anger. As I think I know exactly what's right, and everyone doesn't think like me, and I can't get everybody to do exactly what I would do, I'm angry. But it's pride is what's fueling that. I'm proud, I'm proud, I'm proud, and now I'm angry. I'm proud, and I'm angry, I'm proud. And you give in to that, and oh, it will create a sense of entitlement. You realize so much of anger is rooted in entitlement. I'm not getting what I think I deserve. People aren't listening to me. People aren't respecting me. People aren't doing what I'm saying. It'll create a sense of entitlement that will blind you and can cause a man or woman to lose touch with all reality as they plow ahead, trampling over people. All the while saying, what is wrong with every, everybody's an idiot that's in my way. There's an idiot that's in my way. And they don't respect me. They don't respect me. They don't respect me. And I'm not just talking about out on the highway. You certainly see it there. Problem? I hope you realize you cannot compartmentalize your life. I'm going to let myself go on the highway. I'm going to rage on the highway. But I'll have self-control at work and in the home with the people I love the most. Doesn't work that way. You start letting yourself go on the highway, you'll start going in the workplace, and you'll start doing it in the home with the people you say you love the most. Because anger is addictive. Anger is addictive. It releases a chemical that at first you think, boo, that made me feel better. Not for long, right? Have you ever found, I'm gonna punch a hole in the wall and I'll never be angry again. You start destroying things, and you just start destroying things. It just gets worse. It relieves you for a moment. And when you allow yourself, it'll take you. Here's what you need to realize. When you let yourself go down that path and say, I'm not even going to try to stop this now because it's right. It'll take you further than you ever meant to go. Keep you longer than you ever meant to stay. And make you pay more than you wanted to pay. It'll cost you. It'll cost you people dear to you. What, we turn to things because we think they'll help us, right? Does anyone say, I think I want to get addicted to a, a prescription drug? No. They think it'll help them. It'll ease the pain. It'll ease what's troubling them. No one turns to alcohol and abuses it saying, I want to be enslaved. Anger's the same way, you guys. We turn to it because we think it'll help us get what we want. Because anger's almost always a way that I intimidate people. I bully them. I get them to back down so that I'll get my way and I'll feel a little better but not for long and it begins to enslave you and own you and define you that's what this verse is talking about which is very very frightening oh I hope you realize what he is saying in verse 9 be not quick to be angry for anger lodges in the bosom of fools when you let yourself go Anger stops being something you do. We're all guilty of getting angry from time to time. It's one thing to get angry. It's another thing to be an angry man or woman. It stops being something you do, and it starts being someone you are. This is who I am now. This is who I am now. And so I no longer choose when I'm going to get angry. On the early front end of this, you decide when you're going to get angry. What, here's what happens. You let yourself go, and you don't even decide when to get angry. You wake up angry. You're angry all day. You go to bed angry, and you do it all over again the next day. Anger lodges in the bosom of a fool. And you become a very, very different kind of person. And you can't see it, but other people around you are like, oh, my goodness, 
you didn't used to be this way, especially people trying to live with you. You're almost impossible to live with, work with, play with, go to church with. When you let yourself go, you become a very different kind of person. You say, Brad, in what ways? Oh, listen, when you head down this path, you'll become, when, when, when anger lodges in you and lives in you, you'll become sullen, moody, hypersensitive to criticism, quick to shift blame, full of self-pity, and maybe even violent. But it all started with convincing yourself This is right. This is the best thing to do. I deserve. Why doesn't everybody? The Bible's full of be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to what? Anger. Nowhere in the Bible does it commend you becoming defined by anger. Now, there's that verse in Ephesians 4 that says, be angry and sin not. So there's a righteous anger, and please don't think yours is that. Hello, I have not seen that. So there's Jesus in the temple with the whip. That was righteous anger. Almost always ours is rooted in self, 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 self. And oh, that'll destroy you and everyone around you. So he says raging against your circumstances is a pitfall. It'll destroy you. Letter B, he points out another pitfall. Letter B says Well, romanticizing the past. Romanticizing the past will actually distract you and disable you. Now, I know this doesn't sound as toxic or destructive as anger, but it's just as unhelpful if you want to thrive and live for what matters most. Because you realize glorifying the past keeps you from effectively living in the present. It just keeps you somewhere else. You're never, I love that phrase, be all here. Wherever I am, be all here. Be all here. I'm in this meeting. I'm with our kids this afternoon for a cookout for my wife's birthday. I'm with these church leaders in Montana. I want to give everybody all of me right now, right here. When you romanticize the past and glorify the good old days, you are not able to live fully in the present. The present. The present. Look at verse 10. Say not why were the former days better than these, for it's not from wisdom that you ask this. I know there's certain things about the past that are attractive, but if you were to go back there, you would find out what was hard. Like, oh, I wish that ministry was still on horseback now, and I did not have text or email. I often think about some of those early ministers as they went from from one town to the next. They did not know what terrible thing just happened. I do. Here's the bad news. People died left and right because there was an antibiotic. They died. So so you can say, oh, I wish there were hard things then and there's hard things now. There were good things then. And if you allow God to work in you, he'll give you eyes to see good things now. Right now. Just like Esther. He's raised us up for such a time as what? That. No. This. This. If he wanted you in a different century, he would have put you there. Right here, right now is the best way to live. And here's what, I hope you realize this. Someone who talks about the good old days all the time, when you poke, actually has a really bad memory and a wild imagination. That's what creates that. You don't remember very well, and you add things that weren't even happening to make it better. And, And... It's like, because here's what nostalgia does. Nostalgia plays a trick on our minds and intensifies emotions surrounding certain things. And if you could go back, every now and then, you know, we're able to. Like, let's just go back. That place, that point in time, that season. If you've ever been able to do it, if you ever lived long enough, oh, when you get there, tears are involved. Guess what? Not happy tears. Almost every time it's tears of sadness because it's not what you remember. That house, you know, it's funny when you're little, you think the house was huge. The house was tiny. The bedroom that you thought was so cozy is actually really dingy. Dingy is what it was. The garden that you thought was so amazing is actually small and run down. Amazing turns out to be Quite ordinary. Ordinary. 
ordinary. So stay with me a minute. Because there's something going on here I want to unpack. So what is it? What is it? What's going on when we feel nostalgic and your emotions sweep you back to certain people and places and points in time? If you've lived long enough, I don't think right now most of this room is saying, I don't know what you're talking about, Brad. Why is it that most of you know what I'm talking about? I have it. I think of Chattanooga, Highlands Way, where I rode my first little bike and my friend Sandy crashed and knocked her front tooth out. I think about wearing fringe vests and putting peace signs all over my room because the teenager across the street was doing it, was into the Beatles. I'm that old. Beatles were new and hot. I have these fond memories of certain things. And often it's associated with grandparents, all right? Here's what's going on. You felt loved. You felt safe. And it seemed idyllic. Like, like even right now, I have one of the most fondest memories and thoughts and senses of the smell of toast, the smell of coffee, and waking up in my grandparents' home with light coming through the window. It's like, oh, yes, I'm with Grandma and Papa. I smell toast. I smell coffee. I still I hear the murmur of conversation. And when I toddle out there, people love me. <laughs> right? What is going on? It's true. But here's what I want you to understand. This, so you don't have to feel bad about this. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the reason we do this. I just want you to shift it. It is more than immaturity and childishness that causes all of us to have these feelings. You know what it is? It's what God put in us. We already saw it in Ecclesiastes 3. When he put eternity in our hearts, do you realize what happened? You have a longing for a home and a desire to belong. Longing and belonging. Longing and belonging. You know there's something more that's better problem we tend to look back and think it was that but that was just a taste of it when you have this nostalgic feeling wise people don't try to go back let it let it pull you forward as you look up and long for home you can say thank you for that thank you there was a foretaste is your grandmother perfect louder no but just the presence of a grandparent that just was all for you and loved all over you and did whatever you want. You know, my one grandma gave us not just bags of M&Ms, family size. And it wasn't for the family, it was for me. Just make yourself sick and throw up. Every summer for three weeks I went there. Not just one ice cream sandwich. All you want, just eat till you throw up. Thank you, grandma. Grape Fanta, I just did it till it came out my nose. No limitations. This is what I long for. Right? I was like, that's what grandparents are for. But you don't want to go back. Thank God this is associated with something bigger and better. The perfect home and the perfect person who loves you unconditionally. Let it. When you feel your heartstrings pulling you back, redirect it forward and look up and long for a home and thank God I'm going home. He's preparing a place for me. He loves me. There's gonna be a new heaven, a new earth. This longing is what's ahead, not what's back. And you'll live better this way. But he's got a third one. A third thing he says, oh, do this, not that. Oh, do this, not that. Number three, he says, stop trying to control it. And start trusting God. Oh, dirty little secret in the Christian camp. I've been a pastor a long time. I've been counseling a long time. I've lived with me a long time. Here's the dirty little secret. We don't actually like trusting God. We'll wear the t-shirt. We'll sing trusting God songs. We might have a coffee mug. And then when it comes down to doing it in our life, but not now, not this. I got to control this. We always think everybody else should trust God, just not me right now. And here's how it sounds. I know it because here's how it sounds, even in small group or in counseling. The tone of the voice reveals, it's the indictment. People will say, well, I guess on that now, we're just going to have to trust God. Oh, my, has it come to that? Please, someone else, an idea. An idea. Anything but trusting God. Is there something else we could do? Right? Until we've 
until we've burned up everything we could think to do. We don't want to trust God because we're so afraid he won't do what we would do or at least won't do it on our timetable. Trust. Both verses 13 and 14, right? Everything in our world has us rubbernecking and jerking our heads around, looking at people and stuff and people and stuff. And he's like, he calls us back and he's like, oh my goodness, consider God. Verse 13 and 14, both verses use the word consider followed by the all important word God. Bring God back into your equation, back into view. Pay attention to God. Fix your eyes on God. Focus on God. Remember God. Everything in this world causes us to shrink our world down to no bigger than the trial, and you don't see God anymore. You don't have God in view. You're not thinking about God. He's like, you got to think about God. Consider God. Verse 13 and 14, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? It is not wrong to pray for God to change things. But do you realize there's some things that you're praying about that he intends for it to stay crooked? And you can fast and you can pray and you can carry on and you can say the name of Jesus over and over. And if he wants it crooked, it's not going to be made straight. And sometimes we're boggled by what some of those things are. Like, really? 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 And then, oh, verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. We're good at that. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. What? Yeah. Here's what he's teaching you guys. And this is not fatalism. So it's not like, oh, my goodness, God's going to do what God's going to do. So I'm out. I'll just ride the ride. These two verses are not fatalism. You know what they are? They are an invitation to rest in a sovereign, loving, wise, good God who's in control of everything happening around you and to you. Nothing can come into your life that doesn't come through his hands first. Sovereign, sovereign Sovereign. And why is he talking about this right now in chapter 7? I believe he introduces this so strongly to considers and God because, oh my word, right? The book has been, the book has been filled with difficulties, oppression, injustice, disappointments, and confusion because he's describing life, quote, under the sun. And so, oh, he wants to inject what we desperately need. Hope, he now reminds us that despite the brokenness, our lives are in the hand of God and are ordered by God. He's in control. He's in control. He's with you in it. He's with you in it. He's with you in it. He's not outside of it watching it happen. He's with you in it. And that includes prosperity and adversity. Now, maybe you're thinking, but Brad, what difference does it make whether it's random or it came through the hands of God first? It's still really hard and tragic and difficult. Oh, oh, if that's you, let me plead with you. It makes a huge difference, huge. When you are resting in, when you are resting in and you settle into a God-given revelation of his sovereign loving, good, purposeful control of all things, both good and bad, you can still move forward with joy and hope, and listen to this word, expectation that he's in it. I can be hopeful for what lies ahead. Expectation even without a detailed explanation for why it's happening. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I long for an explanation. It's human. I long for an explanation. But if you read your Bible, you will find very few, if any, explanations. Book of Job. There's your book on suffering. Longest book in the Bible for a reason. Because he wants you to sense suffering can be long. And drawn 42 chapters. Did Job have questions? Did he want an explanation? 
Did he get an explanation? What did he get? A revelation of who God is. Oh, sure. I long. I'm human. I'd love to know why. But here's what I'll tell you. I would love to know why. But I don't have to know why when I know who is in control and with me. My sweet wife, we're celebrating this month is six years since she was struck with transverse myelitis. And I know she looks normal and she's beautiful and she's delightful and she's tooling around here somewhere. But she's not normal. And I don't mean mentally. She's a virus. There she is, thank you. A virus ate a hole in the lining around her spinal cord. Quote, how random is that, right? It's like one in a million people have this. A virus ate a hole in the lining around her spinal cord and it will never grow back. And she will never be what she was before July 2017. We have two kids that don't know the Lord. Oh, you guys, I would love to know why. Trust me, I thought, I, I thought we did this well. We homeschooled, we did the character cards. Beaver, antelope, blah, 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 blah. We didn't have a TV in the main room. Ha, 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 ha. And we got two kids that don't want to follow Jesus Christ. Would I like to know why? Oh yeah, but I know who is with me in it. And I know who can get them. And so I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray. And God helps us. We know who. When I sat behind that church in Montana when I got word long distance that Vicky was being taken to the ER, trust me, my world was rocked. I was like, oh my goodness, she can't walk, she can't move, she's paralyzed, what? But by his grace and by his spirit, his spirit settled in on me, and the first thing I heard was, Brad, I'm with you in it, and I'm going to use this for my glory. And that's before I even knew if she'd ever walk again, and we're so grateful that she walks, trust me. But he assured us he was with us in it. Whatever you're going through, that's what the Bible offers. Not a name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, how can I make this end, because I got the right formula. You don't need the right formula. You need to know that he's with you. Consider God, that he's sovereign, that he's good. And even in the midst of mess, there's grace and there's his grip in the midst of mess. We tend to think grace is associated with easy, fun things. Praise God, grace shows up in the midst of mess. He's not afraid of it. He steps right in there with grace and the grip. Grace and grip. He says, oh, oh. Trust God. Now, it's not wrong to pray for healing. It's not wrong to pray for God to save my kids. I do, daily. But oh, what a game changer it is when you choose to rest and trust him. Trust him in the midst of all that's going on. And one of my favorite things about being in the same church so long is, oh my goodness, I get to preach God's truth and then I get to point to people who are living God's truth. And I don't mean just like a random one-off every now and then. Praise God, there's someone actually doing what the Bible says. All over our church family, it's like, oh, if, if you knew what I knew, you'd be so encouraged. And here's the other thing. You're not the only one going through something hard. You sit here and you think, oh, I've got the hardest thing in the room going on. You probably don't. If you knew everyone's heart is different, but almost everyone's in the midst of something hard. The question is not, can I get rid of this? Do I have God with me in it, in it? And so oh, I love, I love encountering men and women in our church family that have embraced it and experienced what I'm bringing you. There was a woman in our church just two years ago. I have her permission to share some of this with you. Two years ago, she wrote me, Five months, she's only five months into grieving the loss of her husband after 45 years of marriage. Now you just think about that a minute. We've only been married 37 years and I almost can't remember being single. And you just think, oh my goodness, what would life be like without them? Oh, that's about one of the hardest things you could go through. She says this, listen to what she says. Quote, I've often thought I'd like to share thoughts with you, Pastor Brad, and say thank you for the many ways God has extended grace to me 
through the preaching and ministry of our church family. I have an analogy I've shared with the ladies in my community group about the time before and after my sweet husband died. I felt like fragile, colored glass during the ups and downs of his medical journey. And if you can imagine, her medical journey happened during 2020. Do you remember how awful that was? She's sitting in the parking lot of the hospital. She's not allowed to go in. She's not getting the information she wants. It was one of the hardest things I've ever seen someone go through as I prayed with her and tried to keep up with it. Oh, that would be hard. I want to be in there. And why haven't the doctors updated me on something? Oh, when she says ups and downs, I mean hard stuff. She said, I felt like fragile colored glass during the ups and downs of his medical journey. The ups added brilliant color and the downs pitted and cracked the surface. When he died, 24 hours after we spoke to a doctor optimistically about a transfer to rehab. Can you imagine that? He's getting better. We're going to rehab. He died. She said, I shattered like a sheet of glass. Even so, I knew, and she's got it all in caps, K-N-E-W, that my God would take those pieces and create something more beautiful, meaningful, and lasting than any stained glass window. Having lost a sister and both my parents to death, I thought I understood what grief was like, but none of those prepared me for the death of a spouse. Every aspect of my daily life was impacted, and it still is, at times, excruciating. I hope you realize trusting God doesn't make the pain go away sometimes. It doesn't mean you don't cry. She's saying it still is excruciating at times. But I patiently wait as God unfolds his plan for me. And I lean on Jesus to comfort and guide me. I read my Bible every day. Now, I also want you to pick up on, do you hear how many means of grace she kept leaning into? She's in a group talking your way through this. She's reading her Bible every day. Listen to what she says next. And I pray, God, open me to your word and open your word to me. I'm listening to a daily podcast of scripture read aloud and commentary on what was read. I've read the Bible several times in the past, but now it seems far more real and intense than I ever imagined it could be. Truth preached from the pulpit has me saying amen in my heart over and over. The growth in my faith especially during the last five and a half months, is setting the stage for something. Scripture, songs, prayers, and sermons are more meaningful and poignant than ever before, even in grief. And maybe because of it, my faith is changing and growing. I often turn on YouTube when I get home from Sunday worship. So she kept coming to worship, and then she goes home and says, I'm gonna watch it again. When I get home from Sunday worship, I catch even more from the worship songs and sermons the second time around. God's word, his people, and worship have contributed greatly to my healing. I learned through Grief Share. We have a Grief Share ministry. She got in it. And I'm not picking on you, but sometimes when I try to pray for someone and come alongside them in a calamity, I say, where are you reading in the scriptures? I'm not. I'm just so overwhelmed. Who are you connected to? Nobody. You guys. You can't do that. I know it's hard. You just think, I don't, I feel so odd. No one here gets it. You can't do that. You must have God's word and you have to have God's people. Oh, she's leaning in. She's leaning in. That was a choice. God's word, God's people and worship have contributed greatly to my healing. I learned through grief share that it may be a long and at times difficult journey, but mourning to joy is possible and I am hopeful for what lies ahead. Wow. And and I'm not like, oh, I've been here 27 years and that's the first amazing email like that. It's not. I've got piles of them saved in my computer that people write me because they leaned into what God's word says and they found it to be real. That's what putting verse 13 and 14 into practice looks like, looks like, looks like. Oh, and so listen to me. One of the most important verses in all the Bible is found in Ecclesiastes chapter three. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And he's also put eternity into our hearts. Oh, because God has put eternity in our hearts. You can spend a lifetime 
not really knowing what it is you're longing for. And you can spend a lifetime trying to be quenched, to quench your thirst in the things of this world. Oh, you can chase scenic vacations, expensive cars, sexual exploits, and mind-numbing drugs, but it will not quench the thirst and will not leave you satisfied. What you're actually longing for is a relationship with your creator God through his son, Jesus Christ. Everything else in this world, even good things, friendship, food, music, the best things in this world, you guys, do you realize are just an echo of the original? These are echoes, echoes. You don't want to fall in love with the echo. You don't want to chase the echo. Everything in this world is an echo that has been drowned out by the shout of Jesus Christ when God took on flesh and came into our world and said, if any of you thirst, John chapter seven, he stood at a feast where they celebrated water. And he said, you thirsty? If any of you thirst, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know what he's saying? You come to him, you fall in love with him, you sit at his feet, you get to know him, and he doesn't just quench your thirst. You have so much left over, you become a blessing to those around you. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Come to Christ. Come to Christ today. Put your trust in Christ. And if you say you know him, get to know him better. And consider God. Have you lost sight of God in the midst of your mess? He's with you in it. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for not just telling us about how not to go to hell and how to get to heaven. God, thank you for telling us how to live now. Now. How to have abundant life now. Even in the midst of hurt, even in the midst of brokenness, even in the midst of limitations and pain and sorrow and confusion that you've promised joy can show up in the middle of that. Hope can still be in the middle of that because you can still be in the middle of that. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for coming down to us and now leaving your spirit with us that you live in us, your word is alive to us, and you've given us each other. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.